Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum and a proud member of the Drum Click Podcast Network. You can find out more about both of these at bigfatsnaredrum.com and thedrumclick.com. Anyways, this week's guest is Mark Stepro. Mark is the epitome of an LA-based working drummer with a resume that includes recording and or performing with The Wallflowers, Ben Queller, Brett Denon, Keith Urban, Dwight Yoakam, John Prine, Butch Walker, Leon Bridges. It continues, believe me. Mark has an infectious energy, and we actually shared lockouts across the hall from each other in LA for about a year. We didn't even realize it. I just remember hearing this great drummer on the other side of the door that kept reminding me I need to work on my feel. So thanks for that, Mark. In this episode, we start off with a walk down memory lane before hopping into Mark's top five influences that made him into the drummer he is today. Cheers. So I do want to start off with an apology to my listeners from my little soapbox that I'm apparently always on. I have a tendency to rant and rave um, and talk down to all the chocolatey stuff that we as drummers work on in the in the practice room. And I more so champion choices over all that. And so, Mark, I was reading an interview with you and you were basically saying how you're okay with working on that stuff because mm-hmm. it's fun and it's objectively beneficial. You said it way better than I am, but... You convinced me. My head is officially out of my butt. Uh, it's funny. Can I can I interject? Please do. I yes. Was in, in preparation for this interview. I was listening to some Big Fat Five episodes. Uh, one uh, with that dude Adam Willard, who I love. Um, oh yeah. I loved his picks with the Oingo Boingo and the uh, the Devo <laughs> stuff. We can talk about Devo forever because I'm from Ohio. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, my point is like I, I I actually flagged mentally. You got on that rant like twice and 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 it is a, it's it's well thought out i understand the point that you're making and the point that you're yeah. making seemed to be not to speak for you but you were basically saying i'm shedding out of this sort of fear that at some point i'll be asked to execute something that i won't be able to execute and i'll look yes. like a dummy yep. and so as a result i want to have all this stuff in the bag like just in case but ultimately it's kind of a waste of time because what am i who am i kidding nobody ever asked me to do x y or z anyway right exactly yeah here's where here's where i'll push back to you on that please I, I think that that time spent is incredibly valuable and let's use the example of vinnie caliuta uh on the tune fields of gold by sting and let's sort of filter our understanding through the concept of of well you're an audio engineer so like gain structure like headroom right mm-hmm. okay um Steve Gould, who you may have had on your pod, has he's he's got this wonderful analogy for this, and he calls it the mental dollar. Okay. Okay. Um, and what that means is uh it just refers to like bandwidth, right? So like how much is being asked of you when you're tasked with you know pattern X or whatever. So when you play a rock beat, a basic rock beat, you Ben, I'm assuming 
that's not taking a ton out of your mental dollar. It's just, that's like five cents, 10 cents, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you have to do later that day. It's not monopolized. You're not like maxing out or whatever. Sure. Um, so if you think about, there are certain drummers that, you know, you hear play and they, they are playing that sort of basic beat. And I'm not trying to talk trash to anybody, but just as an assessment of somebody's facility on the instrument, you can kind of tell like, Oh dang, that guy's getting pretty close to the edge of like, <laughs> He's about to like, don't make any false moves because we're about to go off the off the rails here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you could picture like um, like a beat up old car on the 110 freeway and it's like like this. But if you had a Maserati doing 60 miles an hour, it doesn't feel like it's doing 60 miles an hour because it can do 200 miles an hour. Right. So when you're when you're compiling all that information and all that shedding that you may think is kind of worthless, just think about how easy that rock beat is going to be because you've sort of trained your mind and your feel to be so much deeper and so much more capable and competent. That rock beat that the producer is actually asking you to do is just going to feel like a million bucks. So when Vinny is playing that beat that I could probably show to my wife and I could probably get my wife to go do tat, do tat, do yeah. but he's playing it and it's weighted W E I G H T E D weighted down by all the wisdom and all the knowledge and all the facility he has. It's like just watching, like, it's like watching, you know, LeBron James just do a layup or something. You know what I mean? So it's important. I think for me, it's important to just have those muscles there. You don't need to use them, but it's better to have them and not use them. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> I get so self-conscious sometimes saying anything in any interview on the podcast, because when you're casually talking to your friends, you can have an opinion and it can morph and then it morphs. But I'll listen back to episodes I did nine months ago and I had an opinion and it's not the same opinion, but it's just a state. It's like there forever now. Um, so I did want to take this opportunity to be like, guys, I'm sorry, guys and girls. Um, Mark's perspective on this is the correct one and is now my perspective. So thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Well, it's interesting that you would say that First of all, it takes a big it takes a big person to admit like not admit that anybody was wrong or anything, but just like yeah, wow, I really I thought about that. A different perspective sort of entered my consciousness. I chewed it around, and now I, I feel differently. That's just being a grown up. That's just being an adult. Like that's impressive. That's what more people should do. That. Well, I still the one thing I'll still say that I agree with is that, and it's a it's a uh, a hole in my my practice routine is that I. I'm not, when I allow myself to do that, then that becomes 90% of my practice routine. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, how do you break down your practice routine when you have kind of not a specific gig you're doing? Because obviously right. I'm assuming you would be learning songs more often than not because you're the working drummer. Um, but yeah, how do you break down if you just have an open three hour session? Funny you would say that because I, I literally do it in three hour sessions. And you're absolutely right to delineate or differentiate rather between tune learning and practice practice because to mm -hmm. me tune learning isn't practice i mean you sat at the drums for those three hours but i'm like i'm playing next week with a guy called nick freitas who's a, a real wonderful songwriter who plays with uh, bright eyes and then i'm going i'm going to uh, out west to do some gigs with an old buddy of mine named aaron lee tashton who's a songwriter from nashville and both of those i've got 17 song sets to learn and that's an important uh, inarguable part of my job is to get that stuff together but yeah you're absolutely right that's not practice now mm -hmm. As for the three hours, that would actually 
royally fly in the face of what somebody like Dave Elich would say, because uh, his method just happens to be like, why do you care how much time it takes? You need to figure out what you want to do. And if it takes five minutes, then great, you're done. And if it takes five hours, then great, you're done. But why hang up on, why are you getting hung up on how long it takes? Well, for me, the answer to that question is because I don't have, like, I just have an endless list of stuff that I'm trying to get better at. Yeah. Right. It could, it'll take the rest of my life. So, and I also have a family, I have a son, so I take him to preschool and I go to the studio in the morning and for three hours it's work on stuff and I can find stuff to, I can definitely keep myself busy for three hours. Like there are plenty, plenty, plenty of things that I can keep myself busy with. And, and we can, we can get into that if you want. I also already mentioned to Matt Krause, just the time that I had this interesting sort of uh, quiplash adjacent moment in music school, which I went to for a year where on my first lesson, the teacher was like, what do you want to learn? And I was like, Oh, I don't, I just came here for the drum lesson. I, I assumed you would tell me what I was supposed to learn. And he, his point was like, dude, you need to figure out what you want to learn. So you said a one year, did you not graduate college? No, I did. I just changed my major. I had a bunch uh, of other, yeah, I just had a bunch of, I had a bunch of other academic interests is what it came down to. Mm. Um, and I really, really enjoyed the year that I spent in the music program, but I just had a bunch of literature and philosophy stuff that I also wanted to engage with And going to that college. It was like a pretty, um, high octane music program. And I, you know, it was just sort of like if you've ever had any friends from high school that went on to play college sports or something, and then they go to college and you're like, oh, this is like, okay, this is all we're doing. Like yeah. I was literally advised by academic advisors. You know, they would say, they would look at my transcript and they would go, oh, wow, you were the high school valedictorian. Look at you, aren't you smart? And I would say, thank you. I think you're, are you insulting me? What's going on? And they yeah. would say, well, okay, so what we mean is you've got these three gen ed courses that you have to take this semester. I need you to use that big brain of yours and not go to those classes. And just like basically try to get a C in those classes. And because I want you like practicing like as much as humanly possible. So, and to me, that sort of contradicted the whole point of the fact that it is a, a, an all encompassing liberal arts education. It's not MIT or PIT or whatever, like it's a college. So I was kind of like, well, I kind of was intending on going to college. Like, definitely, I want to do music, but there's also like thinking stuff that I want to do. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's like, if you want me to not go to that class, can I not pay full tuition for that class? Yeah, there's, there's also also that for sure. Yeah. God. Well, I did. Uh, you mentioned Matt Krause, and so you mm -hmm. were recently on Working Drummer podcast or podcast Working Drummer. Um, and it's a great interview. So guys, please go check that out. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I love, I love those guys. Um, but I did want to start off, uh, by playing a few songs from your past. And the first one will be the song con man, uh, yeah. by JP Olson. So I'm going to play a little bit of that. Um, and then maybe we can, we can talk about it a little bit. Let's dig in. Oh, I put this. He was a con. Bye. 
actually one of the few records that I've ever actually sort of co-produced. Uh, we recorded that in Brooklyn. JP is one of my best friends of all time. He's in no way a professional musician, but he's my favorite living songwriter. Awesome. Um, he's an absolute brilliant mind and he's, he's one of the most important people in my life. And he makes his living. He's a professional journalist. He, I mean, he uh, was a producer on vice news when they had the HBO show. He was, he was a, he made a ton of docs. He has a documentary called the narcotic farm about a prison in Lexington, Kentucky in the 1940s that experimented on drug addicted inmates by giving them LSD and acid, uh, to study, the effects of psychotropic drugs on people pre-FDA. Anyway, he's a, he's a brilliant filmmaker and a, a brilliant thinker and a documentarian, author and all this kind of stuff. And that song, Con Man, I think he was, he was writing a piece on this woman who got sort of caught up in organized crime in Chicago. And she became a, a, a worker at a, at a brothel in Chicago. And like, I think the, the lyrics are just pulled right out of their conversation. Mm. And this woman saying, uh, she took me to the madam. She looked me over. I got undressed, then dressed again, and they gave me a number. It was a house on the north side of Chicago. Men would wait by the stairs there down below. And it's just a woman telling this, you know, really trippy story about her sort of experience. And then we set it to music. And, um, yeah, the bass player uh, and orchestrator on that track is Chris Morrissey. is one of my best friends uh, on the planet. We were in a guy called Ben Queller's band for many, many, many years. And uh, Aaron Lee Tashton is the guitar player on that, who's a, a very successful songwriter in uh, East Nashville, Tennessee now. Mm. And that was kind of that recording took place in, I want to say, 2007 or eight. It's really old, um, but it was like right when me and my friends were just having the best time of our life living in Brooklyn, being in our early 20s, not worried about it at all, just kind of having a really, really good time and getting home super late and watching four gigs a night on foot And that studio that we recorded at Grand Street. We used to hang out there all the time. So I listened to that track and I'm just sort of instantly, uh, you know, transformed back to that, transported back to that point in my life. And when I sent you this tune, I got to thinking about it as it applies to the sort of meta sense of like drummers sharing songs that they played on, on drum podcasts. And it's like, I can play for you a bunch of stuff that is a, a pretty good um, representation of like what I, what I do, you know what mm. I mean? Like by artists that people who listen to this podcast would know who they are. Um, but this recording is to me is just, it's a little bit more special because to me, that's an articulation of sort of who I am. Sure. More than just like, here, I did a thing and Butch, the producer, liked it and it, they put it on a record and this is it. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, this is more like I was in in this inside of this music. So that's why I wanted to maybe focus. That's why I picked that that particular tune. When you were I mean, because I've heard you tell the story of a of a guy that gave you drum lessons that he came in or you went to his house because maybe there's an overflow at the music school and he had his gig bags and, and he was just a working drummer. Totally. From the beginning, did you always want to be, I mean, I, I, Sideman, I don't think has a negative connotation. I don't view it as that. No. But did you always want to be the Sideman, the chameleon, or was your goal to be, you know, Larry Mullen Jr.? Uh, never to be Larry Mullen Jr. Um, I always wanted to play as much as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And I was always starting bands with my friends in high school and college and all that stuff and playing in bars when I was 14. So I come from, I come from Ohio. I come from a, a tiny, tiny town way, way out in the boonies. So sort of 70s classic rock radio is what they listen to there as like that constitutes like modern music. Okay. So yeah. that it's, 
Eagles is about the end of, you know what I mean? Like there's, or maybe Devo or something like that. You know, it's no music past 1980 for sure. I'm um, kind of I, okay with that, by the way. No, and, well, I'll <laughs> yeah. tell you, dude, in retrospect, yeah. it ended up being a bit of a superpower. Sure. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, being a, a Midwestern 70s rock dude is, is it's just so not cool. It'll kind of, it, it'll never be in or out of fashion. <laughs> That's a good way to you put it. You know what it. I mean? Yeah. It's just totally like a, it's like a pea coat, I guess. You, you know what I mean? Like, um, so yeah, I was in bands, but then I got hooked up with this teacher early on and I just sort of saw his life and I really, honestly, I just wanted his life and, and more important to me than the delineation between Sideman versus Larry Mullen Jr. What's important for me to express to you is just that like, I didn't really see myself. I just thought I was going to be the guy that played at the bar a lot because mm. that's kind of what he was. And he was in Columbus, Ohio and you know, I love Ohio. Like I have this state flag tattooed on my arm, but you, you can really only, there's a bit of a, obviously like a ceiling there, you know, and, and he was for sure hitting that ceiling. And I, so I just didn't even think like, I, I didn't even think out sort of outside of that realm. So I just thought I'll just be a guy who plays like some weddings and some, you know, parties and some cover band gigs and I'll have a band of my own and I'll teach at a drum store. And then I'll, that'll be a total victory to me because this guy was, it is like a world-class musician, which, mm -hmm. you know, every city in the country has got five or six guys who are, you know, you say you're from Seattle? A re yeah, Seattle area, yeah. Chihuahua, Spokane, kind of little east side. There's, e there's easily 10 guys in Seattle who are world-class. Not, mm -hmm. not, oh, he's the best guy in Seattle, but like, no, no, no. He could be world-class in New York or London or Los Angeles or whatever. Yep. And this guy that I studied with in Columbus is one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a lot of stuff to get to, so let's maybe move on to number two, and that is Born a Lion by Taurus. Yep.
So that's Chris Morrissey again, who is a, a, a bass player I was telling you about earlier, who I toured with Queller for six or seven years. He was Sarah Bareilles' band member, uh, bass player, maybe MD for a minute. Um, but he plays with like literally like that band Happy Apple and stuff like that. His best friend is Dave King. He's a total Minnesota. He play, plays uh, upright bass in Mark G's uh, quartet. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And he plays electric bass in the beat music, which is Mark's other band. Mark Giuliano, um, by the way. Mark Mark Giuliano, the drummer. So, so he kind of comes from that world. But then he wrote these really really fun, harmonically dense songs. We were all living in Brooklyn and we were all super into Grizzly Bear at the time mm. and this sort of music that borrows from elements of like classical composition and stuff like that. And Chris has this, you know, deep, deep reservoir of sort of harmonic knowledge as it relates to jazz. So he came up with this incredibly cool music. And that was, it was just, that was like the last time I was in a band band where it was just like, here's this really cool song. You Mark separately, like you do you come up with some cool stuff and like, the you know zero zero limits or whatever and at the time obviously like i was listening to a lot of what mark mark g was doing and beat music and that that sort of jojo mayer like uh restating human beings replaying electronic drum and bass music or whatever sure. um, which is kind of where the verse to that tune comes from and and the chorus of that song goes into like this big kind of halftime feel but under it undergirded there's this like 30 second note marching snares and when we would do that live sometimes mark and some other drummers would like come up on stage and we had like this little chris called it like a snare drum choir we had a bunch of like guys like playing that sort of syncopated 30 second note part while i was just going and it's super it was super fun i really really enjoyed my time in that band what 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 time period was that that was after con man yeah i was in that in that wheelhouse i moved to new york in 2005 and i moved here to los angeles in 2010 so it was some somewhere in there okay yeah i always have this this i mean i'm, I'm 34 mm -hmm. and in, in the back of my head i i want to move to new york for a year and just you know play some off-broadway show and just hustle around town and before i have kids um mm -hmm. That I'm not sure if that'll happen, but uh, yeah, it was always a pipe dream. It was the five best years of my life. I mean, it was so fun. Like, I, I wouldn't trade what I've got going on right now for anything, but I mean, that was just like, we somehow made the rent. We somehow mm. didn't have a total heart attack over it. And we were all <laughs> playing gigs all the time. Yeah. It was a real, it was a really, really robust sort of period. And you could, like I said, you could just be on foot every night watching five different world-class drummers and take the subway home and go to bed at like five in the morning which i like routinely did you sure. know what i mean like every night it was it was so important to me in terms of development mm -hmm. i did want to ask you too because you i think i mean when it comes to working drummer podcast you being on that you are the quintessential working drummer like i think you've accomplished what the, that what was the guy's name the the teacher you wanted to discuss was that was that ed cobbs jim ed cobbs uh, jim ed cobbs yeah yep. okay okay i mean you've achieved that um and so how do you deal with the not knowing what's coming around the corner aspect of your life because you've been that guy for years yeah 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 it's 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 funny i uh the guitar player in that band taurus is a another one of my dear friends called rich hinman um, and he played with Sarah for years and, and Rich is a wonderful guitar player. And we, we talk about this all the time. And it really just kind of the two sort of fundamental <laughs> things that it boils down to is just like, it doesn't change. It doesn't get better. And just like, try to save your money. 
That's you know what I mean? Like just try <laughs> to not spend your money when you have it so that when there are periods of time that you're not working, it's like not the end of the world. And I'm in a marriage now with somebody who's in a, like my wife is a, a, a writer for television and, you know, there'll be times when she works and times when she doesn't work. So it's mm-hmm. very, I've just been doing this freelance thing. I, you know, I worked at a drum shop in Columbus, Ohio in 2005, early 2005, saved up a couple thousand bucks, moved to Brooklyn and actually, no, I moved to the Upper West Side because my wife, girlfriend, wife was get, was in college at the time. But that was the last time I had like a, a job. And it's very unscientific, but mm-hmm. it just kind of keeps working. And I mean, I think I, I do believe this isn't this isn't so much advice as it is just like a, a recitation of my own personal experience, which is just to say that, like, the longer you stay in the game, the more solidified your position becomes because guys kind of quit every day. And yeah you know, people go to grad school and people just give decide they've had enough, which is probably the smart thing to do. You know what I mean? But so, I mean, I really do believe it. It's like, I hate talk speaking in these platitudes because they sort of sound dumb, but it's just like, you just got to not stop. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is so simple. I realize that, but it's just, you have to not stop. You have to be okay with having periods of time when you're not working and you just have to hang on to your money and not spend a whole ton of money and just be sort of sensible. But I was raised by conservative Midwestern public school teacher parents. So like at no point did I ever want to go bonkers with, with money or anything like that. Honestly, the hardest thing in my life right now, as far as that stuff goes, as the pandemic recedes and things open up, you're, I'm sure you're experiencing this is like, I've got like three people asking about the same date, you know, left and right, dude. And it's so stressful because it's like, I was telling my wife this morning, like, Okay, out of three months, these three people picked the exact same three dates. You know what I mean? Like yeah. out of 90 days, it's just these three days that are all, you know, and then you kind of have to like not string people along, but you don't want to say no right out of the gate because you say no because I'm doing this other thing. And then this other thing just miraculously disappears. And it's just a big game that you just kind of always just keep playing, I guess. And you just kind of learn as you go, I think. I know. And then when everything fits into place, it's oh. just like, like, oh, it's like you don't want to, no one breathe. I know. It's totally, it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. Hey, y'all. I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum. And it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time 
and I just kept thinking about it. And so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum. Check it out. Reach out to me. Go to Vessel Drum Co. The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. And check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so see if I can word this correctly. I'm, I'm so happy that I have you on because you, you are a chameleon in, in, in the, and I say that with such adoration, admiration. Um, and so I want to know all your inspirations because you, it's not like you're in this one band where you're known for this one thing. You have to be able to pull from all these different things. So the choices you made, and we talked about how tomorrow, uh, tonight you're gonna wake up and be like, oh, okay, I, why didn't I say this thing? Thousand but percent. The, but the ones you did choose are things that are actually utility picks that you actually pull from having to be this drummer for so many people. So um, oh, yeah. I'm really excited about that. I'm not sure if I worded that well, but you know, I'll drop in maybe a better way to explain it post. <laughs> but so I sent you some prompts, and the first one was. Um, a specific groove that completely changed the way you think about drums. And so you sent me a few for every prompt, which I love. And so it'll be like the f big fat 12 today, which you is awesome. You can just pick one or two. I don't want to bull, like, I don't want to bulldoze this conversation. With bulldoze my, away, man. I, I mean, all my, I, my boundless drumming wisdom. Just... Yeah, well, I definitely am going to play this one. So uh, the song is Cool by John Schofield off the album uh, Groovelation. And... I'm I'm so happy when I find drummers I don't know their name and then I listen to them and I'm like how do I not how have I not gone down this rabbit hole so it's Idris Muhammad yeah and for this song cool I'm gonna start it unless you have a specific spot maybe around 35 seconds. Great choice, by the way, man. Yeah, that's slamming, dude. That is, you mentioned Zig when we were talking, when we were listening. And I mean, it's, Idris is, is a, a New Orleans guy. He's not with us anymore, but I believe mm. he might have even, he played on a lot of R&B stuff in the 60s. He might have been drummer on, um, that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang by Sam Cooke and stuff like that. Oh, but he's cool. also, you know, he's pretty jazz adjacent. He's one of these New Orleans guys that's like sort of R&B, sort of jazz, sort of whatever New Orleans itself is or whatever mm -hmm. and what's so I, I think just what's so hip about that pattern is it's not it's not really like a linear like garibaldi kind of a beat where each limb only plays at one time there's a lot of like overlap you know what i mean like there's a lot of i guess double stops you'd call it like snare and kick hitting at the same time snare and hat hitting at the same time mm -hmm. and all that is it's just kick snare and hat for the most part but it's just this this multi-dimensional groove it's like a mc escher painting of a groove you know what i mean it's like totally. you can't it's very very difficult to pin down exactly what's happening because there's so much sort of chatter and activity happening between all three of those limbs and i just super quickly want to tie this groove to my teacher to jim head this is like talk about jim edmund um <laughs> fine i'll do it all i'll do it for the rest of my life but so i was 14 or 13 maybe and 
I wanted him to show me this like rush thing or whatever and meaning Neil Peart some rush thing which is what you do when you're 14. Absolutely. And I've thought about this. I thought about this a lot today and I want to make sure that I articulate this correctly. I'm not trying I don't want to I don't want to say I don't want to I'm not like worried about getting in trouble but I just want to articulate my thought in the way that is still kind to Neil Peart, okay? Sure. So I wanted to learn this Neil Peart thing. And my teacher was basically like he was like, "Yeah, I can show you but like you know that's kind of whack, right?" And I was sort of like, "What?" Like what? No, what's whack? What are you talking about, old man? You I don't said know Neil Peart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you, you didn't me hear wrong. me? Wait. You know. And his, you know, he he was like, yeah, okay, I'll show you some of that stuff, but like, let me show you some stuff because I think we're gr growing up where maybe you grew up. Like I had zero exposure for the most part to like to black music, to improvised music, you know. And he could tell, and that was one of the reasons that I'm very grateful to him is like he saw. A deficiency in my development and found it and was like let's you know what we'll get to neil peart but like let's let's deal with the fact that you don't know who bernard purdy is you know mm. what i mean and that was kind of his whole trip and he kind of laid that stuff on me and and i think you know the idea is sort of it's like with the thing about with, with neil it's it's just it's sort of the same way that like how people say that you know, Donald Trump is like a poor person's idea of a rich person. Like if you don't like if you don't interact with wealth very much and you see a guy with a gold toilet seat, you're like, oh, my God, obviously that guy. Clearly, that's like a very rich, successful guy. Right. Yeah. Well, so Neil Peart's kind of aesthetic and his whole approach is very similarly, very maximalist in that in that regard. Right. I'm not in any way comparing Neil Peart to Donald Trump. But <laughs> but but my point is you could be a. a guy that delivers Amazon packages and you watch Neil Peart and you're like, oh, well, obviously that's like a, that's a big time. That's huge, the apex. Yeah. That's the, yeah. It's total the apotheosis of like awesome drumming. Mm -hmm. And my teacher was basically trying to say like, let's just put that to the side for a minute because you have some glaring omissions in your aesthetic and in your ability to hear and understand sort of nuance and getting your listening chops together and getting your appreciation chops together. Mm -hmm. And I, Ben, I just thank God every day that I had that lesson when I was 13 mm. and not 23 or 33. You know what I mean? Like he hit me with that early on. And I was just very, very fortunate to get whacked over the head with like, oh, yeah, like the sun doesn't rise and set on like 70s rock drummers necessarily. You know what I mean? It just it was a, a dimension opening kind of experience. And that tune is kind of a, is the is a really good example of that. Yeah. And I would say to piggyback off that for because I'm a few years younger than you, I think um, that for me, my generation, it was Travis Barker. Um, yeah, yep, exactly. And, and I again, I would love to have him on. I wish sure. I could have had Neil on. They're both sure. icons. Um, yes. But for that same reason, I wish I would have uh, had a little bit of that and then been able to move on quicker. Yeah. It makes sense that a 13 year old in the late 90s in Orange County would hear Travis and be like, that's the guy. Yeah, like, I exactly. totally get that. Totally. And my teacher was he was sensitive to that. He was compassionate about that. He was like, that's a guy. Yeah. Y you know what I mean? Like, what about these other guys that you've never heard of that maybe you should? And I was mm -hmm. like, right on, man. Let's go. Well, and it's also to, and then you, as you get older, you can look at Bernard Purdy versus Neil on their intentions. Neil's intention was to be a third of a statement, which was Rush. Bernard and the other drummers were trying to be, not that Neil wasn't for the song, but 
Bernard was trying to make less of a statement as, hi, I'm Bernard Purdy. How are you doing? It was, uh, hey, here's this song. Don't look at me kind of thing in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I listened to your interview I was saying with Adam Willard, and he talked about, like, he kind of distilled Neil yeah, to, to his essence is really he's a parts drummer. You yeah. Know? He's a parts drummer in, in a way that in a way that Bernard kind of isn't or Idris Muhammad isn't. Like, those guys aren't. I promise you, neither of those guys are going like, okay, on the end of four, I'm going to open the hi-hat and then I'm going to do, you know, those guys were just doing some stuff, you know what I mean? Whereas, and it was awesome, obviously, but Neil's thing was like much more thought out. I wrote this little piece for Modern Drummer when he passed, kind of trying to find the the really good, inspiring part of his playing that I can still relate to as an adult because now I'm older and I don't necessarily resonate with that music the way that I did when I was 13. And what I landed on was I, I, cook a little bit at home. I'm not a huge chef or anything like that, but I just like to cook. And I got to reading about that French guy. I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. It's, I believe it's a Scoffier who was sort of the father of the modern French kitchen that influenced Anthony Bourdain. And it's all modeled mm. after the French military. Okay. So everything is in a place, mise en place, and everything has its exact, we're doing, it's, it's the reason that when you go to a really nice restaurant, the rigatoni that you get on Monday, June 1st is exactly the same that you get on Thursday, July 9th. Like, you know, consistency, like super duper, duper, duper consistency. Sure. And that is the brilliance of Neil to me, which is to say that his performance of Livia Strangiato in Oakland in 1978 is almost identical to Livia Strangiato in Portland, Maine in 1992. It's mm -hmm. fascinating. It's a, I mean, that's inspiring for sure. Well, and I, I, I know you were saying that Idris doesn't think about opening the hi-hat. I was going to say, not to disagree, but to point out his thing is that in that song you just you just pointed out, he is kind of being a little hectic in a, in a, in a not distracting way, but a cool way. But he does have that. He has a few motifs within that yes. beat that, totally gr true. that ground it. Um, and I was going to bring it up that do you i mean I'm, I'm assuming you do you bring that into your playing which is like being out of the way but also allowing yourself to have those motifs that that make the audience go okay totally i'm always trying to do what you know what i would call like the minimum effective beat which is just sort of like what's the overall so so that con man beat dudes mm -hmm. that's dudes that's do okay like that's the the basic bones of the beat. Like you can't mm -hmm. really get around that. Um, so if I'm playing on a track for a producer or something like, okay, what is the main guy? First, you know, step one, figure out who the main guy is. Then make sure you make sure the main guy is under control and satisfied at all times that there's, <laughs> there's your lesson, but he wants boom, cack, boom, cack, totally dig it. But what's, how close can I get to, to the line where I can do some stuff that's a little bit squirrely or a little bit weird. Mm. You know what I mean? That's just enough that just if somebody was really paying attention, they might go, look, what, whoa, whoa, what? Oh, cool, huh? Yeah. You know what I mean? Within this overall structure of, it's, you know, just trying to be creative within the lines, you might say. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's go on to the next one from this same category. So a specific okay. groove and it's uh, Inconsolable. Oh God, by... play, the, play the outro of this tune if you would. Sure, of course, man. Sorry, I talked over you. I got really excited. Dude, no, this is, hey, it's, I'm the host, man. So I, I am not here to talk as much. So um, I, I got, I got really excited by mid nineties Lilith Fair rock. It just really got me going. <laughs> as you should. Um, <laughs> so this is, it's, it's 6.53 and I'm at 5.31. Sure, I go yeah. Farther than that? Okay. That, that seems cool.
And so you were saying you you believe uh, under good authority that's Abe Laboreal Jr. I think that's a 22, 23 year old Abe. I do. Yeah, maybe maybe a little older. Um, I talked to Jay Belleros about this. He's on that record too, but he didn't remember being on this track. Sean Pelton's on it as well. But there's something mm. about the depth of those drums, and I don't really know symbol frequency identification. I don't know. It just sounds like peisty vibes. I, I can just picture in my mind's eye Abe playing that tune and that's a really good that's just another good example of 13 year old me is asking my teacher how to show me how to play limelight and my teacher's like yeah why don't you play this super slow six eight thing and make it like stick mm. and i'm just like i'm just like jokes on you old man that's easy <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know exactly. what i mean I'm like yeah, yeah. Who, who can't do that watch you know this I mean? oh shit. I, yeah yeah oops <laughs> crap okay well you know what i mean and i still every once in a while i throw that tune on and just to see if I'm such a like type A, I'm just kind of a high strung, you know, my brain is is way more like Stuart Copeland and I'm just like more like <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. so like that super far back six eight thing is like a real challenge to me. And that's like I still work on that, on that feel. Well, and like you were saying, that you can say, Oh, I can play that, but those roles like going from that I mean that backbeat which is by the way so far back mm-hmm. you're almost about to fall over mm-hmm. and then doing those 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 rolls in between to be able to have those crazy dynamics where it just sounds like white noise and then to go back to those really open notes I mean that's that that is some of the hardest drumming whether a 14 year old knows it or not <laughs> well so check it out this applies directly to our earlier conversation about headroom because 90% of that tune is slow six eight grooving whatever and then in the outro they're like all right i hope you got some gas in the tank because we're going to get weird you know what i mean like i hope you can get weird with us because we're trying to get weird here and it would have been maybe a little bit whack if he didn't have the facility to interact with what the other musicians were doing and if he just kind of out of limitation right Mm. just kind of kept it straight and was like i don't i don't want to try for anything that i can't uh maybe better you know it's just like balls out you know what i mean and that's another thing that's really beautiful about that track is is how expressive it is and how uninhibited it is it's like Mm -hmm. that's a real it's a real lesson for sure yeah in in my mind's eye i can just imagine abe just smiling so happy when when the musicians are building up he's like i'm right there with you guys oh Uh, i got you yeah totally yeah Oh my God, that good! That, hearing that dude play always makes me so happy. Yeah. Um, all right, I do want to, uh, just for the sake of time, let's do Mr. Bitterness. Okay. By Soul Coughing, and I'm just gonna. I mean, if I this dude, is just from, yeah, from just the top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right off the bat. Just so everyone knows, there is a, uh, all the songs we I play or mention on this show will be on a Spotify playlist. Just uh, search for a Big Fat Five podcast dash Mark Stepro, and it'll be all on there. It'll be in the show notes as well. Um, but listen to the all, all these songs. Listen to them start from finish because the drums, t- you know, tell the story. So, but anyways, yeah, Mr. Bitterness. Yeah, that's so that's the group Soul Coughing that was kind of a downtown New York. Uh, well, they were they were you know kind of a late '90s 
what would have been called at the time alternative rock band that eventually wound up having a major label deal like mm. um that's one of the bands that made me romanticize new york because i was reading about them in my hometown in you know rural ohio which you know had eight thousand people in it and these guys were part of this sort of downtown scene which involved like uh John Laurie and the Sex Mob and Tony Shear and um, Kenny Wallison. And they used to play it. It's when Zebulon, which was a, a sort of improvised music venue uh, in Williamsburg, was really popping off. Obviously, it's, you know, the Zebulon they got here in L.A. It's on uh, Fletcher over in Frogtown. Yeah. Moved from New York. You know, it oh. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the, in the 90s, that. dude, in the 90s, Zebulon was synonymous with sort of experimental, uh, improvised, jazz adjacent what probably in the nineties would have been called like acid jazz type groups or whatever. Sweet. And that, that groove, that band soul coughing came out of that scene. And that groove is totally some type of nineties urban dance adjacent style that I have no, that I don't even know. I don't have the language to even like, a, I don't know if that's a house beat or I don't know what you yeah. even call that, that's, but yeah. it's interesting that it does as per our previous conversation, the, 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 the guts of it are four on the floor with a snare mm. and it's just, but all he's doing is moving his right hand over from the hi-hat to hit the backbeat. So the left hand is all offbeat 16th ghost notes. And it's a phrase. It's a beautiful two-bar phrase. And it's very sort of dexterous and it's very busy. But it also comes out of that culture at the time. So I assume people actually danced to that music. So it wasn't just like some show off drum thing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like club music of the time. Yeah. And I was just obsessed with it and wanted to move to New York because of it. Yeah. Um, it's very hypnotic, mm -hmm. you know, it just keeps on grooving. Um, have you gotten a chance to meet Yuval? Um, I don't even know if he's in America. I don't know anything <laughs> about it. I, like he's Israeli for sure, but sure. I don't know if he went back to Israel. I know, I, I know Mike a little bit and I know Mike, it, you know, Mike despises those guys. Um, the not Mike members of Soul Coughing. I played some gigs with Sebastian Steinberg, who's the bass player in that band. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he's a wonderful player. He plays with Fiona Apple and some other folks. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I never caught up with that drummer, Yuval, nor did I, am I aware of what he did after that group. I'm sure he did something, but I'm not aware of it. Yeah, well, in the research for this show, I tried to see if he's around because I was like, man, after listening to Mr. Bitterness and kind of going down that rabbit hole, yeah. I was like, it'd be cool to have Yuval on the show. And uh, he's nowhere to be found, at least on the socials. Um, if anyone knows, <laughs> I'll be put in contact because he'd, he'd be fun to talk to. It's true. It's true. Every groove on that on that Ruby Vroom record is a really fun. It's really, really fun to have those to have those grooves in, in your in your uh, under your hands because they are very they're atypical and they're sort of odd and and they're just they're they're not normal beats for lack of a, a better way to express that and it's mm -hmm. it's it's really good to it's a it's a good shed for sure well and i know i am uh i work with artist relations and so i probably shouldn't say this but when i see a drummer that is obviously so talented um and i put you in the category of not having like they don't focus on their internet presence like some people do it's like kind of respect you know it means you're actually out there do you're living in the real world you're you're living analog um and i've i i don't not respect it is what i'm trying you, to say you've been emailing me at a hotmail address <laughs> yeah exactly and it's not an ironic one you know dude this is a totally random but my first email ever was cheesy boy with a z 
69 at hotmail.com. You, you couldn't get the 420 in there? Uh, that was the next one. Was yeah, that taken? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So next one is uh, the a, a god to me, and it's the favorite Phil choice moment from a certain record, and you put uh, Mr. Levon Helm, oh, yeah. uh, his drum break in Rag Mama Rag. Just play that break, man. In my sleeping bag. Yeah. But all you wanna do for me, mama, So folks listening, if you have listened to this podcast and you haven't gone down a Levon rabbit hole, shame on you. Also, you <laughs> I've exhaustingly talked about him. Um, but not this song. So please, please go ahead. Well, I just so first of all, it occurs to me as I'm listening back to that, it's it's a three-bar phrase, which is kind of weird. Um, and I'm I was trying to look up those lyrics because because there's something that he does. Oh yeah, that's it. So 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 if you think of that three-bar phrase, like let's take it apart one bar at a time. So that first one that we could be relaxing, he's just kind of like it's very Ringo, you know, yep. sort of '70s bouncy drunk drummer dude, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then that, that I love the second part is like on my sleeping bag. And it's like, I feel like he might have maybe got the wheels got out of control for a second. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just sort of like, uh, da-la, da-la. But then in the third bar, he brings it back around and it lands right with the vocal because then it's like, oh, God, do my honey is. And then we're back in. And it's like that. I don't know. There was a VH1 made like one of those classic albums about that record. And I can't remember. I'd be interested. You might know since you're such a fan. Like, did he was that vocal? Did the vocal and the drum part go down at the same time? Oh, I wish I knew. I, I, mean, I have that, to imagine that they did. I would assume too. I mean, there's a lot of bleed and the mixing of that record is like, that can't have been all overdubbed because some of it is a little, leaves a little bit much to be desired, if you know what I mean. But in the yeah, best possible sure. way. Yeah, but, but yeah, it just sounds like, it, it just sounds like this one whole thing, this vocal 100%. And, what, and what the drumming is doing and what the vocal are doing are the, literally just the same thing, obviously, because they're coming out of the same person. Mm-hmm. But just that third bar of the, all you gotta do, oh, my honey is, rag. And then he leaves that little hole for himself, uh, of, oh, my honey is, rag. And then when it comes back in on rag, we're back into the groove and we're, we're driving the train again. And it's just like a bonkers, funny drum break it's just ridiculous in in the best way it's just so joyful and exuberant and clearly i mean those guys obviously hated each other by the end but at that moment they were having a good time yeah by the second record they were yeah Yeah. they were riding high i do want to play that one more time and i sure i actually don't want to i hope i'm not wrong um that when he goes into it he doesn't hit a crash cymbal he just goes into it just like closed hi-hat I don't uh, know that there's a crash symbol on this track. <laughs> or maybe I, I, I the entire wrong, record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, just goes right back into close to hat. Yes, he left his symbols in Garth Hudson's car or something. <laughs> or or Robbie Robertson's like, I actually own that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So, yeah, I mean, we could talk about Levon forever, but I mean, he is, he's the epitome of, because he is, I mean, he's singing that song right there, um, a vocalist's drummer. Yeah, yeah. All you you need, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, all you need to know is that, you know, Ronnie Hawkins and Robbie Robertson and all those guys, they like, they idolized him. You know, 
he's the he's the epitome of like he was there when rock and roll was born he's from arkansas and oh he's the best he's, he's the, the best, best. Yeah, uh, for sure. to quickly move on or else i'm going to start talking about him more yeah. uh, all right so a performance this is number three uh, a performance which you either played or witnessed that altered your musical course and uh i'm gonna let you say it okay. to uh humble brag is, is, <laughs> all right i i very much apologize if this is totally douchey like but you did Dude, say brag. that you performed so i that i took that as an opportunity so all right so my friend drew taubenfeld in los angeles do you know do you know Drew Toppenfeld by chance. I don't, unfortunately. He's a wonderful dude. He's a music director for a bunch of artists, and him and his uh, partner Max Bernstein have a company, and they put bands together and all this. And um, I should know him. He's yeah, yeah. They're they're really good. Um, I'll tell I'll tell you about him. Um, but they uh, he was emptying uh, the R&B artist Leon Bridges, and they had four dates that they needed to fill uh, on drums because their drummer basically Le- Leon was between record cycles, so there was no mm. more touring, but it was like oh, we have a gig on July 1st, July 29th, August 10th, and September 3rd. Yeah. And f- for Rico Allen, the, the touring drummer at the time, that was bad news because he had hopped on another tour. And and he was like, dude, I can't just like be available for four gigs in three months. Going you know? back to what we were saying earlier at the beginning. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And I had a young, my son was very young at the time, so I wasn't touring at all. And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds great. I'll totally go do that. Sure. And then Drew was like, yeah, one of the gigs is, opening for the rolling stones in amsterdam and i was like yeah i think i can make it to that yeah Yeah, yeah, i'll see if i can see if i can get there so you know i don't know it's it's interesting it didn't it didn't change my musical trajectory if i thought about that question more just sort of like we talked about i can think of other gigs that have been like oh then this happened and then this other thing happened as a result of having done this thing Mm -hmm. this wasn't that but it was definitely a nice little feather in my cap to show up with one rehearsal the night before the gig and then go i've never even seen the rolling stones i don't mean when i grew up when i was a kid the band guided by voices from dayton ohio who had played a 400 people that was my idea of like a famous band so obviously i was intellectually aware that the rolling stones existed but i just i didn't really come up out of that world so you know we did that gig and i have to say it went very very well and i was honestly I can say this on your podcast because it's honest. Like I, I'm kind of proud of myself for, I did a pretty good job on that one. Uh, you know, sure. I've blown it many, many, many times that time I didn't blow it and everybody came away from it really, really happy. And I come, I left with sort of indelible memories of a job well done. And I saved one of the, one of the 20 Euro uh, pieces of money that the tour manager gave us for per diems so that I can give to my son someday if he's mm. 21 and wants to go, mess around in europe i can be like here's you know let me tell you the story about how your old man got this 20 euro note you know i'm, sure. I'm like uncle rico from napoleon dynamite <laughs> yeah, back yeah. in 83 i could throw the pigskin a quarter mile you know that's sure. gonna be my thing i'm gonna just be driving my family bonkers with that anecdote for the rest of my life but it was very very important to me and i, I think about it fondly and i thought that was an appropriate answer to your question no, totally. Well, speaking of going back to stories, I mean, that's kind of what you mentioned when we were talking earlier about the wine thing with me. I want to be that old guy. I could go back into the wine industry right now because I love it. But I want to be that old guy that owns a winery that just stands at the end of the bar and tells the equivalent to me, my Rolling Stone with yeah. Leon Bridges story. And like, oh, yeah. he tells us just humor him. He's, yeah, just you know, let him do it. Let him, let him, yeah, he loves it. Yeah. He loves it. <laughs> I'm going to be that guy. I don't care. 
Um, all right, so a record that just hit you at the right time in your life and represents a big old piece of your artistry. So the first one was Sunvolt. The album was Trace, and I, I mean, I have no problem saying on this podcast. There's so much I don't know. I've never heard of Sunvolt. Well, we're on a we're on a drum podcast, and there's little reason on a drum podcast for you to know what that band is. Um, what I thought was important is Mark G was talking to you about Square Pusher. Mm. And he was talking about the Cuban guy that he was listening to and how I can't remember the Cuban guy's name, but basically how those two musics, let's use Square Pusher for an, for an example, mm-hmm. like being into that music is also part of being in that culture, which means that you lived in Bristol, England in 1988 and you wore Doc Martens and had the suspenders and you were into like drum and bass and electronic music and you're going to clubs and raves and stuff like that. And you ate fish and chips and Pakistani food at three in the morning, drunk on Carling and all that kind of stuff. Like it's part you of just the described culture. an amazing night, by the way. I sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds or, great to me. Whereas I call it Tuesday, but <laughs> yeah, totally, <laughs> you know, but so, so this record son, that uh, this band Sunful was uh, led by a guy called Jay Farrar, who had been in a band with Jeff Tweedy from Wilco called Uncle Tupelo back in the day. And oh, okay. Uncle Tupelo basically invented the genre that would later be, be referred to as alt country. Um, they had a record called No Depression, which that was even became a genre of music, No Depression, which is just basically like Midwestern sort of roots music, Americana, for lack of better words. But but this is we're yeah. talking about in 1993. OK. Mm-hmm. And. I was just really into that music when I was a kid, which is strange because it was sort of obscure at the time, but it was obscure. But the reason that I bring up the culture thing is because that music sounded to me exactly what my life looked like. Okay. So I would just get in my beat up 1988 Ford F-150 pickup truck and I would drive through cornfields for an hour past farms and farms and farms to go visit my girlfriend in college who was at a different college at the time. And it was just a very rural, very pastoral, very low key, very low stakes, very humble situation. And that music really, really spoke to that. And again, you know, they always talk about how like the music that you listen to between the ages of 14 and 18 is the stuff that's going to really stick with you. And I just have like very, very visceral Mm. memories of that music being a part of my life. And, you know, so Jay went on to form Sunvolt and Jeff went on to start Wilco, which is another record that I'd I'd like to talk about later, which kind of came up at a, a subsequent period of my life. But Trace was a very big deal for me. It was, it's basically like, um, yeah, alt, alt country was what they called it at the time. Um, let's go to actually the next record. And by the way, it's Osain Del Monte was who Mark Giuliano was talking about nice. from Cuba. Um, I did not know that off the top of my head. I had to look that up. I'm glad you um, did. <laughs> so the next one, yeah, Wilco, Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot. So I was in Columbus, Ohio in college, and I was, it was 2001, and Wilco performed on Conan O'Brien. Uh, they played the song I'm the Man Who Loves You from Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And Ken Coomer was no longer in the band. And there was just this wacky drummer back there with all this sort of multiple percussion setup going on. And I mean, he literally looked like he was going to do like some sort of Steve Reich phase piece, sort of modern percussion piece. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, who on earth is that guy? And I kind of looked him up and it was, you know, early, early days of the internet, I suppose, early, two, it was 2001. And I emailed, I somehow got a hold of Wilco's manager, Tony Margarita's email, because, oh, I know what it was. There was an article about this, this drummer, Glenn Kochi, in, in Modern Drummer, and he talked about he was a teacher. Mm. So I go, well, I'll see if he wants to give me a drum lesson. He's a teacher. 
Uh, sure. but, but I emailed the, the manager just thinking like, well, he just joined this band and they just played on Conan and they're clearly on tour. And maybe the manager in six months will email me back and tell me to go jump in the lake. But I fired this <laughs> off the next day. Glenn emailed me back and he said, Hey, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I love teaching, man. I was like, where do you live? Like we're on tour. Uh, and I told him I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And he was like, all right, well, we're playing in Columbus next week or whatever it was. Um, so I went to the Wexner Performance Center, which is on the Ohio State University campus where Wilco was playing that next night, picked Glenn up in my truck, drove him to my rehearsal space in Columbus. And, wow. we, and we had drum lessons and I had a couple with him over the years. And he was is a wonderful mentor and teacher and sort of influence on me. What what was the biggest takeaway from him, if not a million things? Approaching the drum set as a multiple percussion instrument. And mm. um, he was just, he, you know, he he did that thing. He does that drum set adaptation of the Balinese Gamelan Orchestra that's this poem about the monkey chant and all that. And he's sort of uh, 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 tells this story through solo. It's interesting, you know, we, we hear solo drums and we think, Vinny at the Modern Drummer Festival. And that's cool. I love that stuff for sure. Um, but Glenn's thing is like more like, no, dude, I'm going to one by one open these tiny boxes of chirping crickets. And then I've attached a contact mic to this tiny African marimba thumb piano thing. And then I'm going to fuzz out the whole drum set and play this wacky Steve Reich like phase piece. You know what I mean? And I was yeah. just, you know, a total sucker for that stuff. There's there's a piece, I'll, I'll try to be quick about it, but there's a piece called Clapping Music that Steve Reich made famous, and it's it's in 3-4, and it's just this. So I'll, I'll count it out. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. So that's the ostinato, right? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And every measure, so one of the clappers just does that again and again and again and again. The, the second clapper, every measure, takes that figure and just goes and scoots it over one eighth mm. note, and then one more eighth note, and one more eighth note. And that's why it's called a phase piece, because slowly it starts in total unison, and then it just gets more and more wacky and dissonant and arrhythmic until after, I guess, 12 bars it would be, boom, we're back starting over again. Mm, okay. and, and Glenn has like a drum set adaptation of that so aside from just the aesthetic coolness of it as a composition it's also just a really good independence exercise yeah i wish we could do it together but there's a delay yeah so if we actually tried it in unison it would probably have some weird phase effect it would just sound like a mess yeah exactly even when you nail it it sounds like a mess that's the crazy thing (laughs) oh yeah that's the point um yeah, Glenn, Glenn, um, especially on this this record, all his choices are just the right choices, and uh, everything sounds so different. Every every song is its own little world, and I I so appreciate that about records. It's really it's really that band's like kid A, you know, if that mm. makes any sense. Because because when Wilco started, you know, their first couple of records, AM and uh, AM was AM was total kind of like down the middle kind of country roots rock stonesy twangy steel mm-hmm. guitar very much more in the wheelhouse of like what I grew up listening to right which is why I gravitated to it because then I'm like well, I don't know let's just get the new Wilco record and they sort of slowly got weirder and weirder to the point by when Yankee Hotel came out it was like that took me several listens to be like whoa what is going on here but the beauty of the mission statement of that record um, is just that you know underneath it all it's jeff's songs and jeff's songs are beautiful and they're vulnerable and they're uninhibited and they're really really poignant and they're very moving but they're sort of like okay how can we take these songs that are little sort of like folk 
one, four, five dude strumming on a acoustic guitar, dad guy, and just twist them and just make them really, really at times borderline unlistenable. And they just, Mm -hmm. they just really play around with, with just the sonics of what's going on in a way that was very, very, very inspiring and exciting to me as a, as a young drummer. Yeah, uh, I also like how how low in the mix a lot of those drums are. The younger me is like, just turn it up, crank it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the older I get, I'm like, I don't even want to hear the hi hat. You can play it, but I swear to God, if I hear it, yeah, we don't need it. <laughs> yeah, everybody gets uh, it. Gah, gah, yeah, gah, gah, gah. Okay, totally. Okay, yeah, for... yeah. Jeez, I have the dude. I have the heaviest right hand. It's 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 bad. Um, <laughs> all right. So next one is uh, the national, and you you kind of said, um, and I'll say what you said basically any mid-2000s brooklyn indie record a la the yeah yeah yeahs tv on the radio spoon great band and grizzly bear but uh the national the album boxer brian devendorf is he's a god to me as well yeah me too when when about 2007 when that record came out i was on tour with ben queller a lot uh with chris morrissey and we had a tour manager our tour manager brandon reed was also the tour manager for the national and i just that was just this one year in my life where i was probably 24 or however 25 and we like went to australia and japan three times that year and i just i have such visceral memories again of just waking up on an airplane landing in nagoya or something and that that record just blasting in my ears um Mm -hmm. and i was so inspired by it because again you know brian very much in the model in the school of a uh, Stephen Morris from Joy Division or or Alan Myers from Devo is totally like a parts drummer, um, mm. and it's it's very much coming out of like art school. And and because I, funny enough, you know, I got to know Brian because of that tour manager in common. Brian was super jazzed about the fact that I'd studied with Glenn because Brian was obsessed with Glenn too. So then we used to just get together at my spot in Brooklyn and just play clapping music together. And it was just like, he was like my Brooklyn drum nerd buddy. And they're from Ohio and he's, he's moved back to Ohio, but he's still, he's another guy who was very cool to me when I was younger and was very accessible. And we played drums together and stuff. And I, I model a lot of my approach after what he does, which is, again, um, so Stephen, Stephen Morris and, and Alan Myers, you know, I don't know those guys super well, but like those guys literally were just, I think, coming at it from this sort of like art school composition element. Like, I don't think those guys were drumistic in any way, but what that did was it just they created these kind of wild those guys is or, or the guy in Oingo Boingo, too, for that matter, like mm. their default wasn't. You know, my default is free falling or something. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, but those yeah. guys are like, so check out Devo playing Satisfaction. The, if you've ever heard that, yeah, the snare hits on one. And I was thinking about this today. It's like, if the Stones version of Satisfaction is the audio equivalent of like sex, basically, the, the Devo version, it's like a photographic negative. It is the most like anti-sex. It's just a big brain. It's just a big, weird, twisted, Ren and Stimpy brain doing this weird science thing or whatever. You know what I mean? But Ren but and that, Stimpy finally made the podcast. Yeah, I'm yeah. so happy. Yeah. I just I had a bet with myself that I could drop that in. Um, we did it. But but you know, it's it's very, very compositional based. And that's how Brian and that's how uh Brian Chase from the AAS approaches his thing. And that guy was a jazz, I mean he's a total Oberlin jazz drummer for sure. But there are like phrases and shapes 
and parts and themes that develop throughout the composition. And that's a big part of what's going on on, on basically all of those records by the National and all of those records that I uh, cited. And those records were also, it's, you know, there's a nostalgic element too, because all those records were really, really big when I was living in Brooklyn, but all those bands were in Brooklyn and were like around and you could hang out with them and they were accessible. 100%. Yeah, Brian, um, and there's so many bands, and I'm not going to name all of them, but uh, that I think about when it comes to this. But Brian is one of those drummers that that band would be completely different if he wasn't the drummer. Isn't and that's my god, dude. That's like that is the highest compliment that you could pay a drummer. Like Absolutely. If, if you take him out of that band, it's not that band. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. Um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you after we get off the air to to intro him because I've reached out to oh, Brian yeah. a few times, sure, but sure, I would sure. he is he would be uh, I would love to dissect his brain when it comes oh, to of that. Of course, yeah, let's do it. Um, but yeah, so you said um, uh, or moving on the next one. Actually, I'm gonna play a little bit of because I didn't play any Wilco, but I do want to play. Um, I'll play Apartment Story because that one's just oh, kind yeah, of just driving. Such a gorgeous song. All right, so this is Apartment Story from. Boxer, the national mm-hmm. record. listen to that because i just had that in my headphones on my like old school literal ipod just mm. wandering around brooklyn hung over some afternoon walking through park slope i'd being 25 without a care in the world and boy it was just such a happy moment in my life for sure that's awesome man um all right so uh the next one is the f- a favorite drummer the next prompt which is the final one unfortunately but it's the a favorite drummer and how the overall body of work uh has affected you okay. and we've kind of already talked about glenn kochi and brian devendorf yeah but you have not mentioned uh jim eno oh yeah yeah john from uh my band is uh that's his favorite band in general so oh, i yeah. spoon is amazing by the way if i didn't mention that it's uh he's the drummer for the band spoon but yeah go ahead big fan uh so they were they they were big in Austin, Texas in the mid 2000s. And uh, Ben Queller, who I played with uh, during that period of time, moved from Brooklyn to Austin. So Chris and I would fly to Austin twice a month for a year, the better Mm. part of a year. Then we made a record of Queller's uh, at Spoon's studio that that Jim owned. Um, And, you know, I kind of got to watch him set up drums and stuff. And uh, that's that's another band where, you know, it's like Jim is like the Lars of that band insofar as like he's very much a leader and sort of like an influencer and in how things go. And he's a big, big, big part of that sound. And he probably doesn't have the headroom that a Brian Devendorf has, but he, you know what, like the common thread of all these guys that we're talking about is like, he just sounds like a really good musician who's playing drums. Sure. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily that that's the Levon thing. That's definitely mm. Brian Devendorf, Glenn Kochi. Like those guys are musicians and somebody just happened to sit him down on a set of drums. And that's that's kind of what what Jim has going on. And also there's his engineering abilities. And yeah, I mean, the, the Gimme Fiction record was big for me. Gaga 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 was really big for me. Transference was really big for me. They're just like a they're like a modern. They're like a recording band. There's something very stonery about it where, you know, there's also there's not a ton going on. 
yes, in, yeah. in the mix. You know what I mean? So everything just pops so clearly. And if you are enough of a nerd as, you know, maybe you or I are, you know, you're just listening. You're like, oh, every 16th time he hits the floor, Tom, there's this weird spring reverb sound or whatever. Yep. Like, it's just some serious dad like nerding out like they put sure. some serious effort into some stuff that maybe you know probably won't affect sales so to speak but i <laughs> i enjoy the the sort of audio nuance to what's going on in their deal well see that okay now i'm gonna go back to the beginning when i said the whole like not working on six stroke rolls i wish that's the stuff that i would like if i had the cpu to practice that was uh -huh. How can I practice making those decisions, you know, like adding the every 16 bars, have this spring reverb thing go on the floor, Tom? Um, that's what I wish I could physically practice. And yeah, the, only, the only way I can actually physically practice is to have a podcast where I invite some of the best drummers on to show me things that I need to listen to more. Well, so. I, think what, I think what about what about that, about that, Ben, uh, <laughs> what you're doing is so cool. It's like, you're, you know, it's funny earlier you referred to. I forget what it was, but there was some point in which your, your mind was changed or whatever. And you were like, oh, you know, it's not very common that somebody would just turn around. I'm embarrassed. You said, I'm a little embarrassed that I have, you know, episodes out where I had a previous viewpoint and I've since maybe evolved it a little bit or whatever. But I hear that. And I'm just sort of like, how cool is that? That you're kind of now it's me talking to you, but it's like <laughs> you're you're like on this. I think I'm if I'm understanding what's going on, it's like you're on this fun like journey to like learn some, about some new music. And yeah. especially in the pandemic, I mean, what a great thing to do and what a great uh, way to occupy your time and to like learn all this stuff. You know what I mean? And I, because it's not like that's funny. You were sort of I think you're being facetious when you're like, well, how do I practice learning all that kind of stuff? But it's just I think the answer is you just kind of have to like be obsessed with music for like your whole life and just listen to it all the time. You know what I mean? There, there's not just like a, if you do this, then you'll know. I mean, you could just like put yourself in front of Sam Cooke's entire catalog, I guess, or whatever, you know what I mean? But like a lot of that, it seems like you put a really high premium on people who make really, really evolved musical choices. And mm -hmm. I would, and that's great. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. I, I am in that same camp. And I would just posit that I think those people arrived at that, station or at that position in their careers because they just listen to a ton of music you know you will you i think mark talked to you about this like you're gonna be you and that's the beauty of it i'm not i'm sorry i'm not trying to be presumptuous and give you like a, a life coaching counseling session here but it's it's cool that you know life if you're just, yo i'm a 35 year old dude i lived in seattle i went to wine school i liked rock music now i like some other kind of music i'm trying to work through it i'm trying to make sense of it all it's like well that's awesome that's just that's humanity you know that's well, a beautiful you. thing it's kind of cool honestly it's kind of cool to to see it because i mean i've got everything figured out i don't have anything to work on so you know <laughs> yeah. it's, it's nice to see somebody who's not fully it's, formed like you no it's beautiful of... <laughs> just looking at yeah this angel in front of me <laughs> <laughs> every no dude joking obviously but it's like every sure. day every day is a new a new thing and that is you know that's kind of the the fun part of you know, the fancy uh, media studies term is disintermediation, just the fact that like there are no more gatekeepers and there are no more, you know, used to be you'd have to go to the record store and the major label would put out the record. And now you can hear anything. Mm -hmm. you, can, you know, that's awesome. I mean, it's cool. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of just cliche to complain about technology and all that stuff, whatever. But like the fact that I can just in my hand have Sam Cooke's entire catalog within minutes, like, Dude, I got to say, you know, like those kids, those kids coming up behind us. What's that LCD sound system song about? I'm losing my edge. The kids are coming up behind us. Yeah, like, yeah. Dude, kids 
who have had access to YouTube for their like entire life. Like, whoa, like young musicians, you know what I mean? Like those guys are bonkers, but I didn't have that stuff. You know what I mean? I had VHS tapes and stuff, you know, I know now dad's complaining, but it's, it's true. You know? <laughs> no, I was talking to, uh, now I'll humble brag. I had Richard Spaven on last week and we were talking about that, that yes, there is that it's all about perspective. There is, it's harder now to really submerge yourself in a scene and a specific record because you have the ability to go, well, now I want to listen to this. Yeah. Um, and so while that is a, a challenge just because I have ADD, I think any drummer does um, in a certain uh, way. But I also, if I had to choose to go back to that where it was easier to be obsessed with something, I would stay right here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Although it's true, though, it's not even an ADD thing, but like it's it's true that like all those records that we've been talking about right now, for me personally, I've listened to those records hundreds of times, if not thousands in some cases. And I do wonder, you know, maybe the silver lining for somebody in my generation is just that like, I don't know if a 24 year old kid is gonna listen to the band record a thousand times. You know what I mean? Like he'll probably check it out on his way to something else, on his way to check out Krong Bin, on his way to check out Tyler the Creator or whatever, mm. and that's all cool, but like, I did some deep dives and so did a lot of people. You did too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's not without its merit. Let's just say. Yeah. Well, Mark, those are your big fat five. I'm so happy. We got a chat, man. This has been a blast. I wish I'd, I wish I'd met you when you were back at bedrock, man. That's cause I was there. All, <laughs> we probably passed each other in the hall a dozen times. Well, I, I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did. Yep. We pulled the same little, little tag for a, a band audition. I'm sure. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, Mark, uh, have a good day, man. And I'll probably see you very soon, man. So yeah, rock on. Thank you so much for having me aboard. It was a real pleasure. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger. And hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.